0: Hello everybody to the second episode of Why It Works. My name is Niv Musan, I'm here with Ethan Wolf, and we're ready to talk about physics and life with you guys. Thanks for coming back to us after the first episode. We got lots of feedback that was really fun to listen to and we hope we're gonna keep generating new ideas and thoughts into your beautiful brains and Ethan, you wanna tell us what we're gonna do today?
1: Yeah, so uh, today I'm thinking let's talk about the concepts of quantum entanglement. Uh, It's something we kinda touched on in our last episode where we were talking about how quantum computers really work. But uh, today I really wanna dive into the concept of how it works and why it works. So what is quantum entanglement? Yeah, um, so again, uh, entanglement, it's the base of the word is that you become entangled together or you become coupled together. Uh, essentially in this, in this system or quantum system, we have these particles that become connected together. Now, what I mean by that is that let's say one particle is uh, spinning in a counterclockwise rotation or spinning one way. The other particle will have to be spinning the other way. This is essentially a fundamental principle that uh, basically most of the quantum mechanics is built upon or is a result of quantum mechanics itself. Uh, essentially, what we're, what's happening here is that depending on the experiment done or depending on the method done, we are able to connect two particles together and they're able to actually share this connection across a vast space. What I mean by that is that let's say you have one particle here on Earth and you have another particle all the way on Mars. If we measured one particle or we measured the particle here on Earth and we wanted to find out let's say its spin like I was talking about earlier then we would end up measuring the spin on the Earth particle to be let's say counterclockwise. Consequent- uh, consequentially we end up finding that the particle on Mars will actually spin in the opposite direction. And this is because the two are fundamentally connected together.
0: Okay, so I understand what it does, and I would like to further uh, understand how it works and why Why would one particle be so connected or quantum connected or entangled there into... Another, yeah, uh, and how we got to it. so let's let's take it back a little. Okay, yeah. So how do we even entangle two particles? That's a, that's a
1: big question. Now there are many, many methods to do so. Um, the one of the easiest or, yeah, one of the easiest methods is uh, you can actually split a high energy photon, a particle of light. Through a crystal. Uh, Essentially, a crystal is just a uh, uniform structure of atoms. That's all any crystal ever is. And what it does is that it can actually split this photon into two lower-energy photons. One will have a positive polarization. Polarization is simply uh, just the the way in which this particle is uh, polarized, or essentially... Uh, how this particle is able to transmit itself. Um, so one we will say has a plus polarization and the other one will have a negative polarization. We don't know which particle has width until they're observed. That actually goes back to a concept from episode one in which I was talking about this idea of the wave function. If, uh, if you guys don't exactly remember um the wave function is actually just a mathematical equation or a physical equation that describes all properties of any fundamental particle or any particle for that
0: matter so is that the the equation that has to do with the probability that's exactly right um when you learn about
1: the uh when you start learning about the wave function you actually find out that uh, the properties of this function directly correlate to the probability of an event or a, uh, a measurement occurring. Um, the, mathematical, uh, the mathematical correlation is that the absolute value of the wave function squared is equal to the probability density of an event or a measurement occurring.
0: That's lots of big words. You sent me back to physics classes when I was near 10, huh. and I remember myself fading away once the equation got a bit too complex. So let's let's try to, to take it down to the ground. What I get from from this is the process of two photons separating for one photon with high energy separating into two with lower energy and and then once the separation occurs one goes gets a plus sign and one gets a minus sign so they're uh, opposing to one another in a way or completion or so the other so that's that's a great way to start thinking about it
1: however i want to bring us back to this idea of quantum superposition remember how we were talking about the fact that until a particle is measured, it can exist in every state at the same exact time. So
0: the same thing applies to these photons. It's like the Schrödinger's cats. Exactly. Uh, the if you if you have a cat in a box, and you're asking someone if it's dead or alive, the cat is silent without... that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no meowing. <laughs> no meowing. <laughs> or you have your plows in. Yeah. <laughs> So the cat is both dead and alive until someone checks it out. So both occur at the same time, and that's what it sends me when you
1: say. Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. Um, the whole thought hypothesis or the whole thought experiment behind Schrodinger's cat is to explain this weird, um, this weird phenomenon about uh, superposition in quantum states or in the fundamental structure of our entire world. So. With this being said, you have, let's go back to our original example of having this higher energy photon being split by a crystal into two lower energy photons. Now you have two, these two photons that are both are existing in a quantum superposition, one photon or both photons for that matter, have both the plus and minus. Now the way that it's described is through the wave function itself. The wave function is what describes all possibilities that the photon can exist in. So until a measurement is made, both are existing in this superposition. Both are dead and alive. Um, and so yeah, that's actually one of the really cool things. And basically, with this idea, we have that until this measurement is uh, is a, you know until this measurement occurs, you have both the positive and negative going about in their own separate ways but because they were created from one source, they're connected together. It's uh, such a fascinating concept, but it is one that is true. We've proven it through, uh, there was one of the coolest experiments we did actually, I wanna say three three to four years ago, where we had uh, some scientists on the ISS, or the International Space Station, and we had uh, some scientists in, one of the countries I can't remember, but basically we, you know, we split these. We split a photon, and we ended up measuring one on Earth, and instantaneously, the wave function collapsed, or collapsed. Sorry, <laughs> for um the particle or the photon that was on the uh, on the ISS, and so it was actually experimentally verified that even though these particles were separated by a very far distance, the, uh, the wave function collapse at basically not the same instant, um, but at a rate that would have taken uh, like any sensors or any uh, standard of light uh, about ten thousand times faster. If I recall, if I recall,
0: what do you mean by collapsed? The wave function exists while there's no measurement occurring, because then nothing makes it uh, certain or makes it one. Like Schrodinger's cat, once the observer has been added to the equation, then the equation changes. So when you say the wave function collapse, it ne- it means it becomes no longer a changing variable. It becomes de- defined. Exactly. That's exactly right.
1: So once you add these observers or these measurements, um, you actually end up Causing the cat to be dead or alive, rather than dead and alive. This is uh, the same principle that we were actually talking about with co- uh, quantum computers. It's that the you know they exist as both a yes and a no until a uh, until data is put into the system, it's run through, and the result is uh, made. Once the result is made, the reason why or the reason why the result even exists in the first place is because at the end of the experiment, at the end of doing all of these yeses and noes at the same exact time, you end up with one result. You end up collapsing the wave function into one defined result. And that's really what it is. We're going from probabilistic to definite. It's
0: like making decisions in life. You have 10 ideas in your brain that all can occur at the same time, and once you make a decision, this is—it's really reality itself, yeah. exactly. Um, and so that's
1: that's a really cool thing to think about, you know. Until a decision is made, or until a measurement is made, until the wave function collapses, it is all
0: possible. Everything is possible. One. I like that, I like that statement. I wanna take us back to the photon that we split into two, and that created the, uh, the idea of uh, the entanglement, because that's two photons coming from the same source and they are connected in ways that, I don't know, do we understand it as a human species, how it works, and what causes them to be connected? So, yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. Um, so
1: this is one of the topics that us as physicists are trying to still figure out. Um, whether it's there may be a, uh, well, most likely is a quantum structure to the very fabric of the universe itself, the very fabric of space-time itself, in which, uh, let's say, not necessarily gravity, but let's say there's... Um, You can imagine a filament, or a string, if you will. And this string is basically one of the strings of the fabric of the universe. When something is created and split into two smaller parts, like our photon, this string is connected between the two. And as they get further and further away, this string increases in its uh, distance, or increases in its length. But it's still connected
0: it's still connected between both sources exactly so following that analogy if it's true that's the, th- the string theory right not necessarily um it's more of an
1: analogy it can also be true with a uh, quantum loop gravity uh these are two bridges of quantum gravity or explaining how uh gravity itself works on the quantum level um but you can interpret it as string theory or loop quantum gravity
0: But if I follow that analogy, that means that I'm taking it to the spaces of love. And if I'm looking for my true love, I can be certain that we should should be, if existence uh, is all connected and we all come from the same source and head to the same source. So we are connected, even if I'm here and she's in China right now. My actions and thoughts and behaviors affect the way that she rolls in life. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's entirely possible. Like I said,
1: everything is possible with, when it comes to quantum mechanics and it comes to the very fundamental structure of our universe. It's, uh, it's fascinating to think that, you know, we all, we're all stardust. That's just, that's how it is. That's how it works. Um, so whether soulmates or true love and any of that exists is uh, entirely dependent on whether these uh these strings stay connected now what i was trying to refer to earlier or get to earlier is that this string is entirely connected but once the wave function to collapse or an observer slash a measurement is introduced it is snapped in two reason why is because now you're you're bringing back this whole probabilistic field or this whole idea that you're existing in multiple states this idea of superposition you're essentially cutting that off now and you're making things defined definite for that matter so that actually would end up bringing us into the ideas of whether our consciousness itself remains in a quantum state if so then we could posit. That because our own consciousness, our own brains itself work in a quantum field, work on this whole idea of probability, that maybe it is possible that there really is this idea of soulmates or true love. Because maybe our brains continue to stay connected and the the line or the wire,
0: the string, if you will, doesn't get cut. But, but maybe, But maybe our decisions or external observers or action takers can repeatedly cut those strings and that's what happens in reality that there's lots of and lots and lots and lots of opportunities or possibilities of outcomes so maybe each one of us has more than one soulmate we have millions but every decision we make all the external external world uh, in in posts then it changes and shifts itself until we end up with what our remaining possibilities are. Yeah. Um, you know, like, this
1: is an entirely philosophical debate. You know, we could go on forever. But, you know, it is entirely possible. You know, the whole idea is that we are all connected in a way, whether it is through a quantum mechanical nature or simply a chemist, uh, chemical nature. We all have these underlying uh underlying just similarities that make us all one one thing or one being in a universe so grand so you know we can posit that all these external natures and everything that exists in our world today essentially cuts these strings and forms new strings but there's no way
0: of knowing it's rather just dip your dip your toes in the water and see how how it goes you know oh yeah this is entirely philosophical and not yet practical. I want to take us back to the photons and in entanglement. So from what I understand, we we can create a process that uh, splits a photon into two and then do some cool stuff with it and see how one affects the other. Can we do it with other matters? And can we use it for data transmission, radio, uh, internet? I don't know if we travel through space uh, to far locations. Can we use that? Do, do we use that?
1: Yeah, um, that's actually that's a terrific question. Um, that's actually something I really wanted to jump onto. So, cool thing is that, like I said, there are many different uh, practical applications, or more of the fact, there are many different ways in which we can create this uh, entangled state. Now, it's not only with photons. um in elect we do this with electrons as well. This is actually one of the it was one of the jumping points or one of the starting points for quantum computers itself. We entangled two uh, electrons. We did this through ah uh, through superconductors. Uh, essentially, what happens is we are able to um, so, First, let me let me do some uh, some basic uh, electric physics or electrodynamics.
0: We all prepare yourself.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so we all know that if you have a plus and a plus charge, or you have, let's say, a uh, uh, let's say yeah, you have two particles, one has a positive charge, one has a positive charge, what are they gonna do? Get away from one another. They're going to repel. Exactly. Same thing applies with uh, negatively charged particles. Electrons are negatively charged. So How do we get two electrons to become entangled with each other? Now, the thing is, we can't split electrons. That's just, it's physically impossible. Reason why is because electrons are a fundamental particle. There's nothing smaller than the electron in this, in this field, or in terms of fundamental physics. In order for you to be able to split any particle that's larger or any particle in general it needs to be made of smaller things. We've proven, or, yeah, we've, uh, we've proven that electrons are the smallest that it gets. Now, sorry, smallest that it gets in terms of electrodynamics. Um, quarks are smaller. Photons, depending on their uh, their range or their frequency, change in uh, mass, or not change in mass, sorry, well, <laughs> change in energy. Um, so, Now, the question is, how do you get two electrons to become entangled or connected? The only way, or one of the ways in which we uh, do this is that we have a superconductor and the electrons will travel through the superconductor, um, similar to uh, an analogy in episode one in which these rubber duckies are traveling through a river. And so if you think about uh, essentially... What's occurring? You'll think that these electrons are just gonna—they're gonna go close to each other, but then they'll repel in opposite directions, right? So the way that it works in a superconductor is that the the lattice or the atomic structure of the superconductor is essentially it's vibrating. Now, if uh, this is actually something that's kind of common within uh, what's gonna call it more like holistic sciences or whatnot, uh, everything is vibrating. There's a vibration energy to everything that exists. That's because atoms vibrate. Uh, The molecular bonds that create atoms themselves are essentially moving. These create minuscule vibrations that together create a larger vibration. Now, what happens is in this structure, these vibrations are... We treat them as a quasi particle. Now, a quasi particle is a particle that's not actually, or a quasi particle is a term we give to uh, multiple interactions or multiple effects that we can treat with the same mathematics and physics as we do real particles, like electrons, photons, quarks, stuff like that.
0: So, quasi particle is a lot of particles together? Like, what's the definition of it? So it can be a lot of particles together, but it can also be a lot of
1: effects together, such as vibrations. So in this sense, we're treating the, uh, the vibrations of the superconductor, of the atomic structure of the superconductor, as a set of phonons, or vibrational, uh, a vibrational mass, if you will. This vibrational mass we can treat with the same physics and math as we do an electron. It just, it makes our lives more, uh, or it makes our lives simpler. And it's proved, or it's been shown that the mathematics and physics still describes uh, these effects and these like this nature of these uh, congregations of vibrations or many particles for that matter. Um, So the important thing is that in this structure of the superconductor, you have all of these atoms vibrating together, which we call a phonon. We call them phonons. And so the cool thing is that with this type of structure, the positive ions, basically the positive particles that are a part of these, uh, these atomic structures or each atom of the superconductor, they are actually being bent or pulled towards an electron. That makes sense, right? Because these, these ions are positive. The electrons are negative, and as we all know, positive and negative come together.
0: In general, they would attract one another. It's not only in this uh, new structure, vibrating structure, that they are being pulled towards one another. They keep on doing it in nature. Yes, but in a superconductor environment,
1: uh, if you remember from our first episode, we were really talking about the ideas of they only really work in ultra-cold environments.
0: Yeah, because then you can anticipate where they're going to be because they're not going to bounce around because of the heat and other factors. They're going to go in a straight line like the rubber duckies you described. And then if it's cold and it, the stream is uh, flowy or calm, so you can expect where things are going to be. And you kind of lost me there on how this contributes to the fact that the electrons are being pulled into... To and neutrons uh positive
1: I- to positive ions yeah so that's actually uh this is the cool part so i should uh i should make this really really known um one of the ways that we entangle particles is spatially if you can bring particles close enough together that they in- they basically are able to exchange enough information and create this string like i was referring to the analogy earlier then you essentially build a bridge between the two particles, but they need to be close enough for that to work. Now, the cool thing is that in a super cold environment, the vibrational frequencies are steady enough that it creates a, uh, a well-known or well-defined interaction. It's called a phonon-electron interaction. Now, what happens is that these positive ions, which are connected to the atomic uh, the atomic structure of the superconductor or each atom that makes up the structure of the superconductor it pulls the positive or pulls the entire atom closer to the electron now what this what this hap- what happens from this is that you end up creating a valley or more of like a depression in the metal itself this causes another electron to sink into the valley and essentially, it wants to climb out. The reason why is because it's trying to seek uh, a ground state, really. And in order to seek a ground state or a lowest energy level, um, it needs to be in a uh, it needs to be in a certain energy state. Um, so there's this thing called the Fermi energy. Now, the atomic structure of the superconductor has a certain Fermi energy. Uh, Essentially, this means an energy in which bonds can be created.
0: So that would be like a resting energy? Like, I get that every single... uh, Is this about atoms or electrons? Both. But for every atom, it it has its basic need to get to a certain level of energy, which I call in my mind a resting energy. But that would be like a, a comfortable energy to be in like the, a stable energy, if you will.
1: And so, yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. Um, in order for these atoms to connect to one another, in order for any atoms to actually connect and build larger structures in order for us to even live, they need to be able to, uh, reach this Fermi energy, this Fermi energy or this resting energy, if you will, allow for bonds to be created from one atom to another. And then so on and so forth to build huge structures.
0: So if I'm at a party and I come into the party with lots of energy and I'm bouncing around and I'm jumping and I'm playing the guitar on the table and running around, jumping, I won't be making too many connections because I'm bouncing around. And if I go to the opposite way, if I come a bit down and uh, tired and moody... I wouldn't be making conversations or connections as well. So I need to be at my Fermi state sure. in order to make these connections and bridges and then get myself entangled.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's actually a great analogy. Um, so yeah, like building on this idea, it's that now we have this entire atomic structure and now we have this, uh, this essentially change in the structure of uh the superconductor itself where one electron is being or one uh, atomic or one atom is being pulled towards the electron and now this other electron that's traveling through is basically being pulled towards the other electron this is perfect because now the electrons are actually forced to move close to each other and not repel So basically what's happening here is that the Fermi energy is stronger than the energy of repulsion between the electrons.
0: So the energy of repulsion is the need of every electron to get away from electrons because they have the same charge. Exactly.
1: That's exactly right. And so this is perfect because now, because this energy is stronger than the energy of repulsion, these electrons have no choice but to get close to each other. And now they get close enough to each other that they actually create this entanglement, this uh, the structure or the string, if you will, that binds them together. And these we call Cooper pairs. Uh, Say again? Cooper pairs. It's essentially just the name we give to two electrons that have now been bonded together. This is, exa- uh, this is basically one of the other examples of how entanglement or how we perform entanglement on all of these particles that exist or all these fundamental particles that exist. Or in this case, electrons.
0: And then once they're entangled, do they travel together? Are they physically bonded? And another question how, like, does time take a factor in this? Or do you just have to get them in the right energy, in the right uh, physical location, and then it just happens like this? Or do you have to expose them to one another for a specific amount of time?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the cool thing is that, all right, so uh, first question, I'm going to work with the second question and work back. Um, So the cool thing is that the very interaction between the phonons and the electrons allow for this uh, entire process to take hold. Uh, It's not instantaneous, but it's a very quick interaction. So luckily we don't have to really do much of anything in this case. We just have to keep it in an ultra-cold environment and uh, the, the physics takes hold and it Works out everything for itself. Now, uh, oh well, lost my train of
0: thought for a second. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Your string of thoughts. I was, I was asking, I was asking if after they get entangled, if they travel together, or if they're stuck to together into one, or do they just create the bridge and then anything nothing can happen?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for Cooper pairs uh, specifically. They stay within proximity of each other. Um, however, this is not to say that you couldn't split them apart further and they still wouldn't hold this bond together. The thing is, until, uh, until an observation is made or until a measurement is made, uh, they essentially share this connection. However, there is a distance in which electrons will eventually reach uh, too far and they won't be able to actually uh share this cooper pair anymore or share this bond anymore that's just due to uh coulomb interactions these are just uh, uh these are just electrodynamic interactions between two particles which have charge but if that becomes overcome then the bond is broken so in quantum computers uh we keep all of these qubits close to each other. We, cle- we, you know, we keep them in a nice confined space and they're able to interact with each other and create this built system or this more integrated system or this quantum system. Um, and so it also depends on what type of particle you're working with. Uh, in this case, for electrons, like I said, you have to keep a close enough distance. For photons, you can split them between, you can split them light years apart. You can have one here and one all the way in another galaxy, and they would still be connected.
0: So we figured out a way to use that in order to transmit messages, uh, if it's photons, and I don't know, any type of media or encrypted code. Yeah. Um, so
1: the whole, the cool thing about quantum entanglement is that as we advance our understanding of it and we advance our engineering of the, or advance our applications of quantum entanglement into engineering, we can eventually start to do these cool things called quantum teleportation, um, quantum systems information, which is like building up the quantum internet. Um,
0: Whoa, 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 whoa. What's quantum teleportation? I want to have that tool. Yeah, so it's been a dream of mine since uh, I think... If, If I'm being asked what's my number one superpower to choose mm-hmm. uh I would I would get teleportation yeah um so you're telling me now that it's actually possible but well, not for a
1: little while uh, you know first we have to actually dive deeper into the physics of it uh not to mention it's a bit more complicated to entangle classical uh classical pieces of information what I mean by that is that, uh, at a certain point in size, you go from the quantum regime to the classical regime. Um, basically, when you get to like building structures of atoms, you know, chemistry, if you will, you start getting more into the classical regime where classical physics takes a hold, uh, i.e., not the ideas of quantum superposition where, you know, these states exist all in the same state at the same time. Probability essentially there's a, there's a point in which things don't become probable anymore, but rather definite. So it's a lot harder to go from, you know, let's say human being, or let's say even something as simple as like uh, a worm. A what? A worm. Oh, uh, A worm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's say a worm or. Even something that's not alive, let's just say like a piece of paper. So, a piece of paper is classical; it exists, it's definite. You know, there's no weird quantumness happening. Um, so, how do we take a particle or a, a molecule or even just an atom of a piece of paper, entangle it together? Because what we would we, need, we would need to do is that we would need to entangle every single atom with uh, every single one that exists in this piece of paper, then we would actually need to, uh, basically, once you create this entanglement, you would need to, uh, essentially split the particles so that you have one copy and then you have another copy and you can send it, or you can split, you can send the information from one point to another point. That's a lot of steps, and it's a lot of complicated steps that where we good, you know, it's, it's a hope and it's a dream that we are able to eventually get there, but the physics behind it is quite complex. So maybe one day, but
0: not for a little while at least. So can we teleport right now any type of matter or not even teleport? Teleporting is going the extra mile, but what about using... The fact that two uh, photons are already entangled in order to send messages from one to the other, let's say. Because even if you have the basic movement uh, opportunities, like go left to right or up and down, then people have used pulls or no pulls to send messages or compute. Uh, We have uh, Morse code, so we can use that. Can we do it today? Is this, is this happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, we're actually, we're working on it at the
1: moment. Uh, so the whole idea of, um, remember that experiment I was talking about where we completed a few years ago in order to prove that quantum entanglement is a real, you know, a uh, real construct of our universe, i.e. doing the photon split, having one on Earth and having one in the International Space Station. So it is, uh, it is being done in the most, basic of sense. So currently or in the cer- in the terms of quantum teleportation, what we're doing is that we're only able to transfer or transmit quantum information. Uh, essentially, what I mean by that is that we're transferring information that is uh, held between these quantum particles. So uh, basically like like I was saying earlier, we have a photon that has a polarization of let's say plus, or technically plus and minus, and the other one has plus and minus as well, once the measurement is done on one of them, the other one immediately, uh, or almost immediately, it becomes a defined state as well. So of the opposite. Of the opposite, exactly. So in a way, that's actually transmitting this information from one point to another without being hackable. So it, it would act, this is one of the coolest things about the ideas of quantum teleportation. It's that you cannot hack the information. You can never steal this information because if you try, you cause the wave function to collapse. And so once the wave function collapses, you would have no idea about which particle has which information or which particle is positive and which particle is
0: negative. So that sounds to me very similar to what we're seeing with crypto and uh, blockchain technology with smart contracts and things that you can't hack because it's entangled within the blockchain technology. Um, sort of. So with crypto, uh, with cryptocurrency, um,
1: it's not, it's not working on quantum properties at all. It's all still classical, uh. But the principles behind how they're kind of structuring these contracts and structuring the blockchain as well is based on the concepts of quantum mechanics. However, they're still all classical. So they're still all hackable, but it takes a lot more work to hack these contracts.
0: So you say that once we have more approach, or if we have more quantum computers available to the vast public. Then the ideas behind blockchain could be used in a quantum realm, and then it will be unpenetratable because you can't hack the system once you change something in a way that it shouldn't be changed. It blocks the wave; it like kills the wave function. Yeah,
1: that, that's exactly right. Actually, um, so the whole the whole idea behind like these different concepts, so. Of- uh, quantum cryptography which is just like uh cryptography is a uh, a way in which we encode uh different messages or we encode information so that it can't be hacked this is actually uh, cryptography was used uh during or one of the most famous examples of cryptography being used is during world war ii where uh Oh, I'm blanking on the with the Enigma machines with the German. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. It. I was trying to remember the movie. Um, but yeah, exactly with uh, with Enigma, it was actually able to, you know, it was one of the first computers that were able to break the cryptography or the you know the the code in which the Germans used. And this is what led to one of the tides changing for the war in which the Allies were able to actually win and get an upper hand on the uh, the Axis powers. Um, now, quantum cryptography is essentially using uh, the principles of quantum mechanics, using this whole idea of entanglement in order to create a, uh, a system that basically encodes all of this information in a way so that it cannot be hacked by outside sources. And so bringing back to your whole idea of uh, applying you know, this, this quantum system to a to cryptocurrency itself... It's not only cryptocurrency, but the entire internet infrastructure itself that would become unhackable. No one would ever be able to hack anyone else's information in a quantum internet system or quantum computers for that matter. Um, that's why, that's one of the reasons why we're working on, or yeah, it's one of the reasons why we're working on these things so hard because creating a world in which other people can't steal from another, one of the most messed up things that one can do is essential to creating a world in which more people have to actually, or more people feel safe with all this, all this advanced technology and more people feel, uh, inclined not to resort to this like path of crime, but rather use their intelligence for, um, quantum or uh, computer systems for that matter to do more and, you know, help the world out more rather than take from it.
0: So that's one of the cool things about this field. Um, that's, very mind opening um I feel like entanglement is still a topic that there's a lot to dive in to dive into. Uh, I've taken from it the fact that once you entangle two particles they're connected and their connection is stronger than their physical location and I, we went into possible use cases of this fact but, just thinking about it, the it applies to so many things in our own reality currently. Like the fact that we make connections with other people or to objects. You now I have some objects in my life that I've made uh, an entanglement with and then it doesn't matter how far I am from that, I still feel it. Uh, maybe it's a thing of what's happening in our own brain and then just... I'm entangled to the idea of the object and not the object itself. Uh, cause in my brain, there's lots of, uh, little, uh, little strings yeah. and little bridges. Um, but it's super interesting. Uh, do you have anything else to add on this subject? Yeah. So, um, you know, if we're taking this idea of like maybe
1: becoming entangled or maybe connected with, uh, an object or another person. Um, those can be also attributed to the whole, uh, concept of emotions, um, as well as how the brain interprets, uh, emotions or feelings. Uh, those are more of a biochemical, yeah, more of a biochemical stance, or at least the way I see it. Sure. We could interpret the idea that we're making these quantum entangle or these entanglements between ourselves and another or ourselves and another thing. Uh, but I more see it as a classical regime in which where our minds have been structured since the dawn of biology itself, since the dawn of, basically, the dawn of like life. Exactly, yeah. The realm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, uh, but yeah, like, you know, the dawn of life itself, it had specific instructions encoded into its RNA and then DNA. Um, RNA is simply just uh, one half of The double helix structure, uh, essentially all DNA if we remember is that little
0: cool spiral staircase. It has two sides. The RNA is like the recipe and then it creates the DNA, which is the full spiral, which has the second ladder to it. Yeah. To create more complex life. And so,
1: you know, all of these instructions were basically encoded into these basic forms of life in order to survive. Uh, that's just essentially how biological systems work, you know, and this is more of a debate for maybe our next episode or more of a topic for our next episode. I don't want to dive too deeply into it, but if you, I'm going to leave you with a thought that, you know, we had to, you know, our initial structures had to have these information or this uh, this information programmed into the RNA and then DNA in order for us to survive, for us to eventually thrive and, you know, create larger communities, create more life, because that's essentially always the, uh, the, the specification or the wants that any biological life form, uh, needs to have. Otherwise, if you don't have these destructions for like fear, happiness, uh, hunger, thirst, all these different things, then you eventually would die all correct. And so now. As we evolved or as we evolved as life forms, you know, we needed to create more complex feelings or emotions, if you will. And so then you create the ideas of anger and uh, more like uh, anger, excitement, basically instinctual drives like uh, where to hunt or like how to hunt or how to avoid danger, you know, all these different things now keep advancing and keep advancing your life these life forms you're eventually going to start creating uh, emotional bonds or these connections and that's where like early humans and like early life forms started to do they started to create these bonds in which it was like okay i need to connect with this group in order to feel safe in order to be fed in order to stay alive and so you know all of these instinctual programming or all these instinctual instructions are still in our DNA today. They're maybe not as prominent because of how advanced we've become as a society or as a species, but they're still there. Um, and so with these ideas in, in place, if you think about how your brain releases a certain amount of neurochemicals that correlate to a certain feeling or emotion, your brain does that since the day you were born. It starts to create all these different ideas, all these different neurochemical, you know, uh, instructions, if you will, or all these certain neurochemical balances that correlate to a specific emotion, And so all of these things become registered in your brain and it starts to create an entire structure for how you see the world. You know, that's all this whole idea of nurture versus nature, but it's not nurture versus nature. It's nurture and nature that create who you are. So. When we think about these ideas behind, you know, creating connections with other people, creating connections with our families, creating connections with objects, if you will, it's more of the brain doing these different neurochemical uh, secretions or creating these certain neurochemical balances when you get input data or you get, you know, feeling something or you see something. It's uh, all of this data that's coming into your brain that then creates or registers a certain reaction that allows for these certain neurochemicals to be released and a certain healing to be felt by yourself so i personally don't like or i personally don't see making connections between people and things and all that as uh as a physics topic but more of a biochem or biochemical or biological uh
0: stance itself and then it takes a lot of the edge off because If it's biological and it's all in our nature and the way we were born, raised as individuals and as species, then we shouldn't be worried because the connections that are meant for us will just occur because the feelings our body will generate once the connection occurred, we sustain it and make it plausible. And if not, then not. So a lot of the time, uh, no, not a lot of the time, but sometimes I find myself asking why something didn't work or why a connection is not suitable for me or for the other person. And from what you're saying, all biology and the right connections and the, the easy connections in life, they occur because they should, because that's how... My biological body and brain was designed to, to soak into, and same goes with the the other person. Exactly. Um. But then it also raises this other idea of uh, you know,
1: this whole concept of uh, fate, if you will, far more of the fact that does our universe follow a structured plan? You know, because if you think about it. The, our universe began at a point, it began with initial conditions, uh, essentially parameters that described how our universe would evolve. So if this is the case, then, or it is the case, then these initial conditions basically spell out how the universe will evolve, how, how all of these probabilities will uh, take fold or become from probabilistic to definite. And so you have to ask yourself, sure, my brain, you know, my biological standing is what creates all these connections between people and things and whatnot and places. But does the entire structure of the universe that was already possibly predetermined from its birth have led me to these different events in my life? So it's it's a very interesting and what do you think? Oof. <laughs> Uh, I think we might have to save uh, the entirety of what I think for the next episode. But what I think is that our universe followed a set of initial conditions that essentially spelled out how it would evolve from beginning to end. So each event that occurs in your life or any of our lives for that matter, we're going to occur regardless of what
0: we thought we were going to do. Including our choices and decisions, it was all embedded in and even if we make a bad or wrong decision we are still on the path because because we needed we needed to go through that and that was a part of the grand plan and that also takes some edge off and takes some anxiety off the equation because you just flow with it I know some people work super hard in order to achieve their goals and dreams and some people just meditate for a few hours a day and they get the things they want and that resonates it resonates uh, and for me it generates trust whether it's right or wrong because we don't really know it's all theories but for me it makes me trust the path and my uh internal needs or wants or desires and just follow them because it's natural and and follow my path i think we should wrap this up uh my mind has expanded i think i soon will need a new skull (laughs) Uh so uh, in order to wrap up you want to go over what we discussed today and uh, let our audience keep the day with maybe a question to debate with themselves.
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, today we started from these whole concepts of quantum entanglement, what it means to be entangled for that matter. We discussed different examples of how we can create this entanglement between fundamental particles, like photons and electrons. A cool little tidbit is that we can also create it between atoms, but, uh, I'll save that for your, maybe your own research if you'd like, um, and so. You know, we went from there and we started to build onto these ideas of, uh, maybe are we all entangled in a way? Or does entanglement guide the way that we exist, the choices we make, the way we live our lives? And then we actually ended up in a really cool place of like, why we have these connections with certain people, certain things, certain places, and whether it is a physical connection or whether it's biochemical crea- a reaction or connection for that matter. Or maybe we all exist in a massive superconductor supercomputer, or quantum computer in that matter, mm-hmm. uh, a simulation, if you will. But yeah, um, you know, and then we started to bridge into these ideas of like, does the universe follow a plan that it was predestined to follow with, you know, its initial conditions with its beginning? And so I want to leave you with this question to ask yourselves. Do you make your own choices or is it a choice that
0: you were always going to make that's a really really tough one i don't know if i will find <laughs> the right solution for it but it's a great question to to play with and and even test it out if you have some opportunity in the next day or two to to question your own decision making and see if you can make a change and see where that leads you. I think it would be a fun, fun thing to do. So thank you everybody for being with us today at the second episode of uh, White Works. If uh, you have any questions or any thoughts or you think we got something not specifically correct or totally wrong, we're happy to hear your feedback and uh, we're always looking to expand our minds and grow and, and learn and produce better content. So you can send us an email to whyitworkspod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. Our email is also available in the description just in case uh, you
1: guys don't catch it. So again, feel free to email us with any questions as well. Feedback is really appreciated. And if you guys just want to say hi, ah, you're more than welcome. ins I, I would love to meet all you guys.
0: Yeah, we're happy to entangle. And thank you so much for listening. If you can share with some people you think would appreciate this content, we would appreciate it. And until next time, have an amazing day. And we'll see you there.